I can help them know that whatever you're going through, somebody's been through it before and they made it and they're happy. Welcome to the Laugh and Learn with Vern podcast. This is your host, Eric Vernston. Today, I am proud to have my first guest. Her name is Talia Mealy. She's the Invisible Illness Warrior. You can Google that, T-A-L-I-A space M-I-E-L-E. She will come up on all of the social media. She is on Facebook, Instagram, Medium. She is a survivor and thriver of fibromyalgia, which is an invisible illness, hence the Invisible Illness Warrior. Talia and I know each other from Toastmasters. She is a wonderful speaker. She has had quite the journey in life. And I don't want to spoil it because I want you to listen to the episode. But man, some of the things she's had to overcome to get to where she is. She's just so impressive. And she's inspirational for those that have or do not have any illness, whether it be fibromyalgia or something else. I learned a lot from her stories, her skills that she's built over time. I also learned that I didn't know anything about fibromyalgia and it was very eye-opening. So I'd encourage anyone out there to listen not only for how Talia built these skills over time that led her to what she's doing today, but also the stories of her life and those that have fibromyalgia and other invisible illnesses, learning the hashtag Spoonie, what that meant. It was an excellent time. She's a fantastic sport. We did some improv comedy at the end. And she's funny, which is great. Please enjoy the episode. If you liked it, you can subscribe. We are available on Anchor Podcasts as well as Spotify Podcasts. Just search for Laugh and Learn with Vern, hashtag LLVpod. The show notes will be available on the, should be available on the, each app when you download the app podcast as well as on the Facebook page to search for laugh and learn with Vern. We're also available on Instagram and Twitter. Again, Talia Mealy, Invisible Illness Warrior. Please enjoy. Talia, hello. Hi, how's it going? It's good. Long time no talk. How are you? <laughs> I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. <laughs> I am honored that you are the first guest on the Laugh and Learn with Vern. Can't even say the name. So nervous podcast. Ooh la la. I'm excited. Thank you so much for taking the time. We obviously talked a little bit before this, but the idea of the podcast is a lot of people have done tremendous things outside of just a normal nine to five. They've built skill sets over time, whether it be jobs, activities, hobbies, and they've exported those skills or built on them, kind of either start a career, become entrepreneurial, or do something you know that means some, a lot to them. And you're someone, we know each other through Toastmasters, Yeah. another skill we have, and you're someone that's done that. I wanted to start with just what... What do you do now? 
What do I do now? A little bit of everything, it seems. Um, first and foremost, I survive having a chronic illness with no cure um, and very little treatment. It's called fibromyalgia. Um, so that's my number one job. Other than that, I really try to use social media and even uh, just messaging back and forth with people as a way to connect with other people who have invisible or chronic illnesses and are struggling um, to just inform them of the science versus what you see on Facebook and um, that it is possible for us to have a good life despite the hand we were dealt. Um, and yeah, I mean, I volunteer, I do, you know, kind of a little bit of everything it seems like. I do notice you cook and you bake a lot. Just a smidge, yes. I do that a lot, actually. Um, that is, that I feel like cooking and food is the way that I move through the world. Um, it's my universal language. Everybody understands food. Doesn't matter if you literally speak the same language or not. Um, and it's kind of a pressure release valve for me, I guess you could say, whenever things get a little too much and my brain gets a little busy. Um, I love to cook because it forces you to focus on just the food. If you don't, then you end up with a grease fire. So <laughs> you yeah, have to push yeah, everything kind of, out. Kind of important. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. You're also working on a book. I am. I am working on, I guess, technically in a fancy way, it's called a memoir. Um, not... <laughs> okay. Memoir. But, like you're... I, that from like your uh, like your French friends, your memoir. Exactly, I, I better do them justice. Okay. Um, so it's basically just walking through my story and what it was like to have an illness as a kid and not know that you had an illness, um, not really know why you were feeling the things you were feeling, um, and then you know the search for diagnosis and trying to survive, you know, college, dating, sex building a career, everything, no, it, moving through the world in a very different way than everybody else was. Now, is this, is this in coordination with, because I mean, right now you said you used to be a social worker. Now you've mm -hmm. kind of branched off and you're, are you focusing specifically on fibromyalgia awareness? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of hard not to when everything that I do, whether it's volunteering, whether it's, you know, cooking, I can't separate myself from the illness. So everything I do is done in a way that's a little bit tailored to somebody who has a disability. Okay. Um, so yeah, I originally went off to college and I went to school for social work and became a social worker and went into grad school and I was working did lots of different agencies, everything from mental health to child welfare to drug treatment. And um, my illness started to progress and I kind of did the best I could. And I ended up having a long discussion with my doctor and my mentor, my advisors, all of that. And we all decided that it was time to take a step back. So about four units short of my master's degree, I left the program. So that was a rough one. Um, wow. Yeah, that was a tough one. But when I look back in retrospect, it was the right thing. I was putting myself in a dangerous position. Um, the illness was developing really fast and I was living on my own in a big city in San Francisco. 
and um, I didn't have the outside perspective to show me that I was putting myself in danger. So I'm really glad I did it. And I'm really lucky that I had people who could sort of stop me, look me in the face and say, this is what you need to do. Nobody wants you to do it, but you have to do it. Um, so that was a lucky kind of um, situation uh, that ended up sort of leading me to food. Um, I So I was out of grad school, but I was still working as a social worker because um, I still have my undergraduate degree. And I was getting sick more and more often and missing more work having to stay home. And I was working with children in the um, foster care system. So it was getting to the point where I had to sort of stop and say, you know what, these kids deserve more. They need somebody who can be there all the time. So I stopped for a while and decided to sort of take a breather and figure out what I wanted to do. And one day I was just joking with my then boyfriend, now husband, and I said, gosh, I really wish that I had gone to culinary school. And he goes, so do it. And that was just not even an option in my mind. Like, no, when? no. How long, how long ago was this? This was in 2007. And I graduated, or I left um, graduate school in 2006. So it was a little bit of time in between. And um, I just thought, that's crazy. Like, I don't deserve that. Nobody deserves, if you're not serving somebody, if you're not helping someone, why would you do it? And it took him convincing me, it, it's okay. It's okay to do something for yourself once in a while. Um, so it, can like, be hard. it can be hard to do that. It can, especially and for I, women. I don't know why that is, because it seems like it'd be so, so basic. Hey, I should maybe do something nice for myself. Right, once in a while. right. And, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I have that, I don't have that same issue, but I, I get it, like, I, I'm like weird about eating. I try to eat really clean. And then sometimes I'll be like, oh, I should eat, I, I should eat that chocolate bar. And I'm like, nah. And it's it's like, dude, it's a chocolate bar. It's one. It's one. It's not Costco. It's not a yeah. Costco portion. You're fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's not a 36 pack. No, no. So it's, it, you know, and I think for women, I think for women, it's really hard. And I think for people who've been in a helping profession, it's really, really hard. Because you're trained to not think about your, to not put yourself into any of the situations that you're working on. So then when you get out of that, it's a little bit difficult. But I remember having a conversation with my mentor in, when I was in social work school and him telling me the whole oxygen mask theory. You know, if, if, if you can't get your oxygen mask on yourself, then you're no help to anybody else, your clients, you know, anybody that you want to help whether it's volunteering or raising a family or anything, if you don't put your oxygen mask on yourself, you're no use to anybody else. We had that same talk from our chaplain here who said the same thing about yeah. a week ago. A few of us, and I mentioned it too, at points I'm like, it's, it's obviously, well, you and I talked, but for those that are listening and don't know, I'm in Georgia. And my family is in Illinois. And for the most part, everyone's healthy. Apparently, they've hidden my grandma off somewhere. <laughs> she, I'm kidding. She hid herself. She's fine. She's she's in an apartment. But it stinks because she's a Cubs fan and there's no baseball. So not a lot going on for grandma. But she's hanging. And she, she loves baseball and church. Oh, but she's yeah. safely, safely wrapped in bubble wrap and okay right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. she's good. good. She's good. Every, and uh, I have, uh, the rest of the family's good. 
but it's strange to be, and it doesn't have to be just another state, but we're connected, but we're just apart. So it's, it's, it's hard to, someone needs something. You can't just hop in the car and go do it. Right. Because so, you are putting yourself in danger with, which then puts them in danger. And you're putting other people in danger, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So going back to what you said, so. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. Culinary school. Culinary school. Yeah. So I, I enrolled and I worked with the school. I enrolled in our local um, in Santa Barbara, which is where I'm from. We have a culinary arts program and I enrolled in that and I felt really old and me, like within the first day. I felt like an old lady because everybody was fresh out of high school. And here I was, I mean, you know, a really old, you know, 23 or something. Um, but I worked with the, the school and I got accommodations and we worked it out and I was able to finish the program and I survived being screamed at by a half deaf French chef every day. Um, half a French chef. In one every- ear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was tough. What was, what was his name or her name? Uh, he he probably wouldn't want me to say it, but I will tell you okay, one thing. <laughs> I will okay. tell you one thing. He had a daughter also named Talia, and so automatically he thought we were best friends, which automatically made me the goody two shoes of the class. So that always you know makes things easier. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, it was a it was an adventure, and it was. It, ma- it was amazing. I was one of the few students that did not cut off the tip of my fingers, um, luckily. Wait, what? <laughs> there was a lot of blood on a regular basis. And if you're someone like me that gets grossed out really easily, it's a challenge, to say the least. So what, okay, what ha- so you're, you're in culinary school, you're chopping carrots, someone cuts off their finger. I, like, what happens? Like, is there just like fire drill of, of just like, we freak out because there's blood everywhere. Is someone screaming? Like what? Ha- I mean, for those of us that have never been around, cause you just casually dropped that. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, people cut off their fingers. I did. Well, inevitably someone faints. There's always that oh. one inevitably. Then there's the, the chef that's so casually because they see it all the time, strolls over, pulls the towel out of their apron, wraps the student's finger, gives the rest of us instructions and just walks them out and takes them to, I don't know, I guess the nurses something or other on campus. Um, and we may or may not ever see that student again. You never know. It's a little intense. It's a little intense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So, okay, let me ask you. So what did anything from, see, so you, you're in this grad program, you really want to get through it. You got some great advice, you took it, and then you did culinary school. Was there anything from, what was the grad program? Was it social work? It was also social work, yeah. I um, When I was finishing up my last year of undergrad, um, I went to SFSU, San Francisco State, and I was so lucky because the program there was one of the top in the country. So I was amazed that I was even able to get into the undergrad program. Um, so I thought on a whim, okay, I'll apply to the graduate program. I'll never get in. Uh, there are people sure. from all over the world applying, and most of them were much older and had had years of on-the-job experience and all of that. Um, and I got in, and I, I, nobody was more surprised than I was, trust me. Like, I really just did it to 
satisfy my mom that I was trying to get into grad school. I applied nowhere else. <laughs> so that's pretty good. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, it was interesting. So I got in there and I started there and um Luckily, I knew, you know, it was a lot of, of the professors that I had seen, they kind of would sometimes drop into the undergrad program and teach a lecture or something like that. So I kind of knew my way around a little bit, which was nice. Did you feel that anything from, well, I want to go one more step back. What was your undergrad major? Social work. Both. Okay, yeah. You yeah. Definitely said that. <laughs> so social work, social work to culinary school. Was there anything that you did? or anything that you think like skill-wise translated? Because you didn't have any culinary experience outside of making food before. Was there anything that made that transition easier that looking back on like, oh, like I learned this here and then that seemed to apply well here? Oh yeah, I mean, when you hear people who work in the food industry talk about pressure, I don't think they would make it a day in the life of a social worker. The pressure that we deal with on a regular basis uh, one of the, the, the memories that's seared into my brain from when I was um, an undergraduate intern and I was working in mental health and uh, my supervisor sent me to um, San Francisco General Hospital to check on a client. So she gave me all the instructions. I had my badge, all of that. I knew that I was going to the psychiatric ward, didn't think anything of it, go in there and when you go into those doors and you hear them close and lock behind you, that will ne that that's the kind of thing that teaches you that you have to put your fear and your anxiety and everything aside and fo focus on the task at hand. And that definitely prepared me for the pressures of being in a kitchen. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can imagine. A little less blood, I have though. A little less blood than psych ward. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. The psych ward has less blood than the, than the kitchen. Well, I want to take it. Oh, gosh. I want to take it back to growing up. So you're, I don't know if you said this before, but in your, I want to say it's on your website. We actually got a plug. Okay. So I'm, okay. First podcast, uh, everyone. You're doing uh, great. You're doing great. Okay. <laughs> I'll just write I would probably just edit this out. No, I won't. Uh, you, okay, we got to plug. First off, we got to plug. I said what you're doing, but we got to plug uh, your social media because we're obviously going to get into more of the weeds of, you know, how you got to where you are now and kind of narrow in a little bit more on what you're doing, especially with the big uh, May 12th yes. day up, which we talked about, which is wonderful. And the timing of this is perfect. What? Uh, oh, okay. You got a website. You got some social media. Do you want to just kind of plug that right sure. now? Sure. It's basically everything is after my name, taliamealy.com and at taliamealy on Instagram. Um, and my last name spelt just like the vacuum, except I am in no way lucky enough to be related to those people. I didn't know there's a M-I-E Miele vacuum. Oh, yeah. Miele vacuum. And ovens and stoves and like the top notch best in the world, but we're not related. And on the social media, what is your? I mean, obviously you talk about fibromyalgia awareness. What uh, what resources or what else do you have on your social media that if people listen to this and they maybe they might think they have it or they have something or they have a friend that this could help? What do you have on there for them? So one of the things that I try to focus on. Um, again, another skill that I learned in my education, my more formal education um, at my university was the ability to sort of 
weed out false information from actual scholarly scientific information that's that's science that's science-based um so i have some tools on my website that will bring you to the latest research there's access to trials that are going on if people want to participate in those there are resources is i mean everything from finding help paying for your medications um to i saw oh, I had no idea that was even a thing. That's great. See, that's social work training right there because I can't tell you how many times I had to do that for my clients. So there's a lot of other, and also just, you know, a, a way to educate yourself on the laws that are available to you, like having an emotional support animal, should your doctor prescribe it, um, you are not to be charged for a deposit for that animal. Um, you know, things like that, that people don't know. And so therefore don't take advantage of that could actually make your life a lot easier to manage. Love it. Thank you for that. Sure. Thank you for that. Now let's go, I want to go back to your growing up. So you're, you're a teenager and then all of a sudden you're like, what, 14, 15. And then how, what kind of like, so, oh, actually, even before that. So you're okay. So you're growing up. What kind of student were you? Were you, did you do well in school? Were you kind of a troublemaker? I mean, I, I would guess probably fairly well. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm thinking you weren't setting things on fire, but I also don't want assumptions because. No, I had a best friend for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I had yeah. a best friend who did that and she'd just run and leave me to clean up the mess. So that was enough trouble for me. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, um, oh, I guess I was an okay student. Um, I really just got in trouble for talking too much. I don't think much has changed in that sense since then. Um, but I, yeah, I grew up in a little beach town in Southern California and um, was raised in a, a biracial, bicultural home. And I think that prepared me for a lot of what was to come in the future. Um, and I think, uh, growing up in a house, my mom was deaf. And so I grew up you know, understanding what it was like to be someone with a disability and how the world perceives you. So that definitely gave me some extra skills that I never knew I was going to have to use. Are you fluent in ASL? I am not. She is. I am not. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm, she's probably very disappointed when she hears me remind her of that, but it is true. Well, how, okay. Let me, then how did, let me ask you this. How did you communicate? She reads lips. Yeah, she reads lips and she also has, um, when she has hearing aids, she can hear enough and between that and reading okay. lips, but when she has the hearing aids off, she can't hear anything. So when we were younger, we thought, great, her hearing aids are off, we can sneak out. The problem is she yeah. can feel everything. So when we would walk out of the house, she can feel us and we could never sneak out, unfortunately. Oh, epic. At what point did you realize you couldn't pull a fast one on your mom? Oh, probably when my brother tried to climb out his window and down the chimney and she was at the bottom outside waiting for him. <laughs> climb out the window and then wait, huh? Climb out the window and then go, down the wait, chimney. What did he try to do? Why do you want to go down the chimney? Because we lived in an old bungalow and the only way out would be for our out of our room would be to go through the room where she was watching TV. So the only other option was out his window and down the chimney to the driveway. Oh, the chimney mm -hmm. went to the driveway. Okay. <laughs> I had this in my head of him just going down the chimney and ending up in the living room again. <laughs> Not on the inside, on the outside. 
It's not what I asked for. <laughs> okay. So you okay? So you got a okay? So you're growing up. So then you you become a teenager, and what like how does this process like what's what starts to happen? Well, so even though the fibro kind of hit its peak to where we knew it was an issue when I was 15, I I, I always felt a little bit different in the sense of you know we would go to the beach and it'd be 80 degrees and I'd be shivering, freezing cold. Um, or, you know, the sand would make me nauseous from the way that it felt on my skin because my nerves were sending an amplified message to my brain. So I kind of always knew that, but I was always kind of, you know, oh, well, she's just a little dramatic and she's sensitive and that kind of thing. Um, so when I was 15, I was playing volleyball at school and I felt like somebody put a, a, a blade in, into my like sciatica area on my back, on my lower back. And it just was this excruciating pain. And when you're a kid, you're not used to pain like that. Um, So I told my mom and and she immediately knew because I wasn't someone who faked, you know, being in pain or sick or anything like that. Um, And it just sort of progressed from that. And there would be nights where they'd rush me to the ER because the pain would be so excruciating and nothing that they, you know, Tylenol or, you know, massaging my back or heating pad, like nothing would stop it. So I would go into the ER, the doctors would say everything's fine, you know, she's a teenager, she's probably just trying to get attention and, or she's hormonal or something like that. And they would send me home and, you know, my mom never believed them, which was wonderful. She always believed me. Um, and she advocated for me. So you kind of grew up with someone always in your corner from the start. Right. So like, cause you're, you're obviously a strong advocate now. So you kind of learned that. I did. My mom's, my mom's an amazing advocate. She's also a social worker. Um, she's a marriage family therapist by trade, but she essentially does the same work. Um, and so, you know, she advocated for her clients and taught us to do the same, whether it was for our friends or, you know, the kid that's being bullied or something like that. But it's one thing to tell your kids to do it. It's another thing to do it and show them what it looks like. And she definitely did that for me. How did you deal with this period of time where you go to the hospital or something would happen and you have what's considered an authority, a doctor or a medical professional say, you know, she's probably just wanting attention. Like, how did you kind of work through that? I mean, I can imagine that frustration, anger, I mean, all the, I think that came later. I think when you're a teenager and you're sort of, you take your cues from other people, I think I started to think, well, I guess I am dramatic. You know, why do I want attention? This is, this isn't fun. You know, you start to sort of uh, gaslight yourself in a way Um, because it's easier to agree with the adults than to speak up sometimes. Luckily I didn't have to because of my mom, but I think there was always that initial self-talk that was you're faking it. And to this day, I struggle with that sometimes. Um, And it's just something that, I hope that eventually the community as a whole will stop, you know, being our own um, gaslighters, essentially. How do you, when you hit, when that voice starts talking now, what do you do to, to work? Oh, through? the best thing is to reach out to the support system I've created because your own brain becomes an echo chamber, no matter how much you try. Um, 
a, a really yeah. important part of, you know, what treatment is available to us is talk therapy, is cognitive behavioral therapy and meeting with a therapist to catch those signals that you give yourself and change them. But there's times that you can't, you just can't get out of that funk. So saying it out loud to somebody who you've, you know, told them ahead of time, this is going to happen when it does, I need you to talk me out of it. And that actually works surprisingly most of the time. I I should start taking your advice. I don't have, obviously I'm not going through the chronic illness, but you know, you get those voices in your head and you're like, nah, nah, and then, you know, if you get tired or something's going wrong and you're like, maybe, yeah, that's the worst. All right. I'm, I love the idea. I'm actually gonna, I'm going to call you. (laughs) Who knows? There you go. I'm always here. Have your number. So you're okay. So you're in high school. You're you're working through it. You're you know your your mom's supporting you, but you're like ah, I don't know. And how is it? So how's that work with with studying? You're you're going through life. You're just kind of are you able to just kind of put that aside? Because I mean you you go. I mean you obviously did well enough. Yeah, to I you know I was lucky in that sense. Um, I missed a lot of school because I was going to doctor's appointments. Obviously, they're during school hours, so I would you know end up spending all day getting an MRI or, you know, something like that. Um, But I went to a really small private Catholic school and there was, you know, a total of 350 students for all four grades. So there was the ability to get that one-on-one attention for the time that I missed. Um, And my parents worked really hard for us to have that opportunity. So I think I was lucky in that sense um, and that I had, uh, you know, parents, that were invested on in making sure that I was set up in a way that I could make up that time. Um, and I just had to kind of, you know, do the best that I could. I wasn't a 4.0 student. I was lucky if I was a 3.5 GPA student, but that was okay because I was doing my best. That's yeah. still pretty good. It's not, it's not like you're some sort of, you were like a well, one or, or even if you were, I mean, it, it obviously worked yeah. out for you, but you know, three, five. Most of my friends went to Ivy league schools. So I was kind of the, Oh, you're going to state, but I, I was happy with it. Fine by me. Was that no, Sam. Okay. So then, so they're going to Ivy league. And then, so were you, were you for sure going to go to college? Well, so thinking? that's the thing. My mom's rule from day one was college or the military, one or the other, but at 18, you're out. So, so her, her big thing was she didn't want us to get caught in a small town because it was a bubble. Thank you for listening to that first segment. We'll now get into more of Talia, what she's doing today, her messages to others. And at the end, we will do some improv comedy games, which Talia knocked out of the park. Again, my guest is Talia Mealy, the invisible illness warrior. If you Google T-A-L-I-A space M-I-E-L-E, all of her socials will come up. She is a strong advocate for those going through an invisible illness, especially those that have fibromyalgia. If you have questions for her, feel free to reach out. She is super responsive and super happy to help. Talia is a wonderful human being, and I am so blessed that she came on. Now, back to the show. So how did you, so you're in college and you're, now is is your fibromyalgia getting how is it progressing is it staying the same um, so it was it was progressing at a much slower pace though um and the way that fibro works for a lot of people is it will progress plateau um and sort of recycle itself 
um, you know, I'll have certain symptoms for a year, they'll go away. And I'm like, great, it's gone. And then in a year, a symptom I had three years ago will pop up that I thought was gone. And it, it tends to change. Um, so, okay. but when I was in college, it was definitely still progressing, but at a slower pace. Um, but at the time that I had in between what we call flares, which are amplified symptoms. So we have symptoms 24 seven, never stops, but they become more amplified during these flares. And the time between my flares was much longer. I mean, we're talking months. Now I have days. So it, it didn't seem, it was a lot easier to convince myself it wasn't happening until I had a flare. So it was different then. Okay. How did you manage to focus and get what you needed done when you would have these flares come up or people, did people know, like, did your friend group in college know kind of what was going on? How did you work through that? Because, it, you know, going back to high school, you know, you had people telling you, oh, mm -hmm. you might be in your head. Like, had you kind of evolved at that point to be like, hey, this is obviously more than that? Like, how did, how did you kind of work with that? Not really. I, I actually hid it for a long time and I absolutely regret doing that. Um, I understand as a younger person, it's a lot harder to explain these to other, the thing to other young people. Um, but I, sure. I, for the most part, kept it to myself. You know, if I was dating somebody, they knew because I would, you know, need a ride to the doctor because I'd have another test to undergo or something like that. Um, but, you know, my very, very close friends knew I had something, but I didn't have a name for it. And that I went to the doctor a lot. Yeah. But my acquaintances, the people I partied with, you know, I, the, I didn't want them to know because I didn't want to be sort of, you know, the weirdo over there. And it ended up not until my senior year of undergrad did I finally, I actually, again, my mentor, he pulled me aside one day because I was, I must have just been floating, not even really there. And he said, you know, this has to stop. We have to figure something out. Like you need to accept the accommodations the university is willing to give you. Um, you need to get a parking placard. You shouldn't be walking all the way up campus with a load of books on your back. And, you know, he really showed me how can you ask your clients to accept help when you can't do it yourself? And it really was just sort of like, am I that arrogant? And I started to not necessarily tell everybody, but I started to accept help from the university more so. Did that, so you accepted, so you finally kind of said, okay, I'm going to do this. Did that kind of, did that, what happened after that? Like, were you, did you like, did grades improve? Did you feel better about things? Um, like, I mean, luckily my grades were always good. It was just, my body was the price for it. Um, so I did well, yeah. I actually ended up sort of enjoying my program more rather than just trying to get through it. And a social work program yeah. is very much an immersive program because you are almost required to open yourself up and put your deep, deepest, darkest secrets out there for the entire class to analyze over and over and over again for two years. And well, hold on. You, have you to don't put your have own to, but it's how we figure out what's going on for us so that we can figure out either how to use it to help other people or how to deal with it so we don't project it onto other people. 
So there's a lot of learning about yourself and, and using your experiences. Like, for example, you know, I'm, I'm biracial and there were people in my class who didn't understand the bigotry and things like that, that comes along with, with living in a biracial family. And so I would be asked, well, you're biracial. Can you explain? Can you tell a story? Can you, you know, put a face with it? So okay. I think it just sort of, when I took the accommodations, it, it, it took a brick off my back. It was one less thing that I had to worry about so I could focus on what was really important. Mm-hmm. So you graduate, yep. you grad school, you get so close, you're doing the culinary program. At this point, okay, so where, okay, where does your... Uh, so he and it? I started dating at uh, the first year of grad school, actually. So when I, when I just, what? Who hit on Oh, who hit on who? absolutely him. And in the oddest way, and this is how I know that only I could love him, is <laughs> we were friends, actually, and we were hanging out and he had gone surfing one day. And he went to the surf spot. There isn't really a path or anything. So you have to run through this field to get to and and climb down this cliff to go to the surf spot. And apparently there was poison oak everywhere. So he had the worst case of poison oak I have ever seen. I mean, he had steroids going, the whole nine to try to handle it. And I was teasing him because I'm not allergic to poison oak. I don't get it. And, you know... He, he and my brother both, if they even look at poison oak, they're covered in it, where I could roll in it and I'm fine. And so his way of flirting with me huh. was when he was covered in calamine lotion is to come over and, and rub the calamine lotion all over me. <laughs> and then I knew it was love. That's it a is. non-traditional he's, he's way of doing it, but, but you said, I mean, you, you're obviously super close. Okay, so you start dating. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. So you start dating in grad school, and you, so you end up doing the culinary school. So then, what? So what? Where does that get you timeline wise? So right. Culinary school, um, 2007. That's right. And so I graduated culinary school, and we got married uh, four months after that. Yeah. Nice. Okay. What year? Hello. Oh, um, that was two thousand nine. Okay. What so you're still in California? How'd you end up? So what like what got you from between so, California and Illinois? No, um, so I work? when I graduated culinary school, I was working um, for a chef in Santa Barbara who catered for people who live in Montecito and their parties and all of that. Um, and again, I hit one of those points where my illness started to get worse faster. Um, and so it got to the point where it was it was getting dangerous. I was having dizzy spells in the kitchen and um, the brain fog was sort of making it to where I was worried something was going to catch on fire. And so I took a step back from that. And uh, my husband is also in the helping profession, which I think is why we connected. Um, He is, there's no easy way to explain what he does, but basically he fixes people's hearts uh, when they have an electrical problem, let's just put it that way. Um, but he's by trade an x-ray tech. And then over the years, um, you know, sort of on the job, learned to do all these other things. So he is sort of like a travel nurse, but a travel electrophysiology tech. 
So we went from oh good. Talk what about, was that? That's a niche right there. Yeah. Oh, that's a niche yes. right there. <laughs> you don't talk about a lot. Very much so. Uh, and you know, it was kind of nice because there's so few of him that do what he does. So finding um, travel assignments wasn't difficult. So we did 11 cities, 17 moves in five years, I think it was. You said 11 cities and how many moves? Five years. Wow. And how many years? Five? Why is Chicago? Well, Chicago so his, uh, Frank's, that's my husband, his uh, uh, stepdad is from Chicago. So he grew up on Chicago sports, hardcore Chicago sports fan. White Sox, though, uh, sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> no, uh, I am a White Sox fan. There you go. There's no apologize. That's right. So they're going to be, uh, be great if we have sports by then, but yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Okay. Can't, can't go there yet. Okay. So, so you're in, so you end up in Chicago and at, at what point, so are you still in the uh, culinary no, industry? I decided that if I were to push through and try to work in a kitchen or as a caterer or something like that, that it was more out of the vanity and denial than my need to, to my love for food because I think that I can do food in any way okay. whether I don't have to be in a professional kitchen and to put myself in danger it is just not not a choice I want sure. to make so then did you then went from doing it working with mm -hmm. like a kitchen pretty much um I was doing some recipe developing and that sort of thing. And mostly, you know, when I found out that what I eat can affect my illness, I immediately, not that I ever ate unhealthy, but I really started to learn more about what that means and how to go about doing it in a way that's not expensive, that's accessible. Um, and that kind of became my primary focus. At what point did you start to become more involved with the, I, and I got to ask, what, like the, uh, not just fibromyalgia community, but I see this yeah. hashtag for Spoonies. I didn't take two. So what, at what point did you start? So you're, okay, so you've got the, you're like, okay, you love helping people. You've learned, you know, to be cool under pressure. You're developing more mm -hmm. of an awareness of what's going on with your illness. Now you're mm -hmm. making decisions. You're working from home. At what point are you, like, okay, now I want to get more involved with the community. Or were you doing that all along? And it was just, um, of, no, there was definitely a turning point. Um, let's see, we were in, see, I know when things happen based on what city I was in at the time. So we were in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I just, it was. Wait, why did you, why did you yeah, leave? The place is fantastic. Um, <laughs> enough said, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, right. but have you seen like the Florida. bugs? I know the bugs. The bugs are why we left. I can't. I can't with the bugs. The bugs. <laughs> okay. All right, that's all right. All right, that's fair. Yeah. Okay, so you're in Fort. Okay, so you're in Fort Lauderdale. Yep. There's and bugs. Um, bugs everywhere. Sandy Hook happened, and that was a life changer oh, yeah. for everybody. Oh. I think. Um, but I remember sitting, you know, sitting in my room watching the coverage on the TV and thinking life is short 
and I'm sitting here putting all the very little energy that I have available to me into hiding my illness. And I decided no more. I was done. And I started posting it on Facebook with just friends and family at first, um, letting them know what was going on, um, you know, putting funny memes and things like that. And from that point forward, it was just sort of a gradual process of not hiding it and not hiding it eventually, you know, with the help of therapy turned into just owning it and, and realizing that it's not only something that I don't have to hide, it's something that I can be proud of that I'm able to survive every day. Was the expectation you had when you decided to do it versus the um, reality yes, different? Yes, definitely. Uh, in, uh, Let me guess. Were people way more supportive um, than you expected? No. <laughs> no. No, I mean, no. Okay. I knew certain people, you know, would take, they know me to know that if I'm putting something out there, I thought it through. I, you know, I'm not one who's constantly seeking attention and, you know, all of that. And so they, they, I knew that they had faith in what I was saying, that they had faith in me. Um, and there were people who, for years, some still now today who don't believe it's real. Um, you know, for some reason it's personal to them. I don't know what that, what, why. Um, but I think that they just, it, it's hard to see some, it's hard to believe in something you can't see. And I have to leave room for that. Sure. Well, you say it's hard to believe in something you can't see, but our whole society is kind of uh, prefaced on believing a lot of things that we can't see. So that's interesting that we draw the line at fibromyalgia. Not to get into anything, those are whole different discussions, but I'm just saying a lot of things that so we're this... supposed to just believe are going on. Right, I'm, I'm right. About it's actually Easter, really funny a... that you say that because this has been a conversation in the invisible illness community since Corona started that we hope I have no illusions that it will happen, but we hope as a, as a community that when this is over, that people will be able to empathize with us. We'll be able to understand more the struggles that we have, everything from not being able to go outside for weeks at a time to, you know, telling somebody something's real when they can't see it. In the community, is there like an, is there like an interesting, like you, you probably see it all the time. Like people are like oh, we're getting cabin fever, but it sounds like for this is illness, the Olympics like that we've been training calm. for. Yeah. Okay. So you're, I mean, you're thriving right now. You're like, uh, right. I, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm well, so I started quarantining earlier than the, then in Illinois, because my husband was really was seeing things at the hospital and was concerned and wanted me to stay home. So I've been quarantined yeah. since March 8th. So I'm, I'm, I'm even I'm starting to get to the end of my rope. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I mean, got what, five more weeks? But you can do you can do certain things, right? Like you can go. I, I think you can get some fresh air, grocery store, right? It's just a yeah. The and big I think I think something that a lot issue. of um, that- healthy people are are not understanding right now is that even when they lift the stay home orders, those of us who are either immunocompromised or um, in the sort of quote susceptible, you know, category, we are not going to be able to go out at the same time you you do. 
we're going to have to wait longer. And our precautions are going to have to pretty much double, triple what yours are. So when people make exceptions for themselves, um, they don't realize that, yes, they're adding on time for everybody else, but double that time for the rest, for us with, with these particular issues. That hasn't no, really been talked about. No, it's, it's and it's, it, it's been talked about a lot within our community, but when my experience from talking to people yeah. is that when they've tried to get that message across to the healthy people in their lives, it's not taken very well. And so I think, you know, we have learned to be selective in our battles. Yeah. Are you going to, so when that, when that time comes, is it going to be, are you going to continue? I mean, I'm assuming social distance, but like, for example, like I was wondering about this, not that it, I, it has to be a thing, but maybe we just keep math masks on for like, you know, they say you can go out, but just keep going for a while. Yeah. It, I like, think that it seem like a good people idea? are going to be and wearing I'll... masks for at least a year and a half, I think, until we have a vaccine because we don't know. There's so much that we don't know about this. Um, and unfortunately, just like the research and um, the science having to do with, with my illness, people aren't reading the research and the science that has to do with this virus. So people's behavior is going to reflect that lack of knowledge, and the rest of us who are aware are going to have to compensate for it. Have you had an easier or more difficult time kind of sifting through the BS of this one. Cause you, I know before you, I don't know if we talked about earlier now or earlier when we were talking on the phone, but you said you're like, you're good at sifting through kind of what fact right. or not is like, have you been right? Yeah. I had to take critical thinking right in college. And I also had to uh, take research classes um, as part of my undergraduate degree um, and learn how to do like scientific research and things like that. And so yeah, I mean, luckily, there, there is a lot of information out there. It's just that the typical sources we go to right now aren't necessarily reliable because they, they themselves have put out conflicting information. Like, for example, the CDC or the FDA, there's been some conflicting information and same with the WHO. And so it's really the importance of critical thinking and following your gut and erring on the side of caution is what's determining the way that you process the information right now, if that makes sense. <laughs> I didn't take a critical thinking class in college. Doesn't always, <laughs> I'm probably a little, no, I, yeah, I, I think that's been a, I agree with you. I, I've had trouble with that just because I've been doing something totally different than my normal day mm -hmm. job where I've had more, where I had more time before, I think mm -hmm. to, to do the research. And um, I can't, uh, I'm technically the president's one of my bosses. Absolutely, so absolutely. Okay, can't comment on any <laughs> but of that. I, I think that everybody yeah, in high school, before they graduate, should be required to take a critical thinking class. <laughs> oh, we could talk about this for hours. I oh, yeah. Education's a mess. I don't, I don't even, yeah, I, uh. As someone who has just a zillion degrees, I think most of them are essentially worthless. And 
I just, the law degree matters. It's not like they're not, but I just like some of the classes I took. <laughs> I remember I tried to take ice skating. My dad's like, I will not help. Yeah, he goes, I will not pay another dollar to help you with college if you take ice skating. And I was, why not? And I looked back on it and I was like, I can't believe I got away with <laughs> taking like half the classes I took. Well, if it makes you feel any like, better, my hometown has thinking. surfing as a class. <laughs> no, I'm still embarrassed by my college. I wish I would have taken surf. Surfing would have been great. My balance, life skills, core, life skills. I've had to work on that so much. I life skills. So you've been okay. So let's go. I want to talk more about the. Can I call it the five? How do you how do you call the community? I don't want. Yeah, fibromyalgia community. Say it, is the you know, fibro say it community. like us. We're fibros. You... We're very casual. Fibro. What so is the spoonie is comes off of the idea this idea called the spoon theory. Um, and I apologize, her name is not coming off the top of my head right now. Um, but it's this woman who. Um, had a chronic illness and it was back, she lived in New Jersey and she went to a diner with a friend who was like, you know, I just don't understand what, what it is you have or how does it work? So they're sitting at the diner and she runs up to the, the server station and grabs all the spoons from the little cup where they keep them to put on the tables. So she comes back to her seat and she goes, okay, I'm going to give you 10 spoons and I'm going to take 10 spoons. So you take a shower that's one spoon for you. You get dressed. That's one spoon for you. You go to the grocery store. Maybe that's two spoons for you. And you keep going until the end of the day. And, you know, maybe you have a spoon left over and you can watch a movie or read a book or something like that. And then you go to us as Spoonies and, you know, taking a shower is four spoons. Going to the grocery store, that's six spoons. Now I'm out and I have everything else that I need to do, and I'm exhausted, and I'm in pain, and I can't think straight because the brain fog's creeping in. My word recall isn't great anymore. Um, and it's just a way to illustrate that it takes us a lot more to do the things that the average person can do without a second thought. Yeah, it's kind of a cool one. I've never it's, heard it's that been before. around for a handful of years, but I think it's just a really easy way for healthy people to understand um, the the hourly cost for us to live. Yeah. Very visual. It's a good visual. There's a joke. Um, one of the one of my instructors right now is a marine, and he makes jokes of. Uh, he says, all right, I know this is really uh, easy for some of you, but it's tough for us Marines. So let me do a visual demonstration. And it's always mm -hmm. like, just like a picture followed by a funny picture. <laughs> You're like, oh, exactly. I get it now. It's like the spoons. You're yeah, like, I would say breaking down the science doesn't tend to be a good way for people to not have their eyes glaze over. I want to talk about how you started building this awesome community. So one of the reasons I reached out to you is... <laughs> We obviously know each other, Toastmasters, and I don't know if it was just you posting or not, but I started to figure out that I'm like, okay, she's kind of done a couple of cool different things. You've got, you, you're very involved in the fibro community, whether it be on Instagram, and you have this kind of, it seems like a very connected, maybe connected is not the right word, but your, your social media very much works in concert with each other to, to make sure that your messages, like when you're, is on point and everything like that. So. How did you start to develop 
kind of like your social media presence and then also like start to build your community because it seems like when you post you go back and forth with people i think i saw someone who was like a fibro school mom or something like that <laughs> someone was coming up like um, as a well, I, think, I think as far as like finding my direction again i i always go back to the idea of yeah. acceptance there is no better treatment for our illness than acceptance. I think the years of living in denial creates a sort of scattershot when you're trying to figure out what you wanna do with your life or what you wanna focus on um, because a lot of the things that we wanna do don't take into consideration that we have this illness because we're in denial. And so, for example, you know, I wanted to own a restaurant and for a while I was like, I'm gonna work towards this and I'm gonna make it happen. and completely ignoring the fact that my body was not going to let that happen. And rather than not wasting the time and using that time to find something that I could do that would be beneficial to others and still make me happy, um, I wasted that energy. So I think when it comes to my message, it's really just about where I am every day in, in this cycle of acceptance. I say cycle because I may accept it right now. And then tomorrow I'm like, I hate this thing. It sucks. I'm tired of the shit. Like, let's move on. You know, I'm faking it the whole nine. Um, yeah. And then I'll get back and I'll accept it. You know, I'll have a really bad flare where none of the medications work and I can't walk. And, and then I remember, no, I have this and it's okay. It's okay that I have it. So when I'm posting on Instagram, I'm trying to just come from, you know, as corny as it sounds from my truth, um, from my existence. And my hope is that in doing that, I'm modeling for other people um, in a way that I wish I had that model when I was a kid. I really would have given anything to know that it was okay to be different. You said you wanted to do something based on what you would have liked to have when you were younger. Have you been able to connect with some people, some younger people in the fibro community? Yeah, and it's been a double-edged sword. Um, it's It's been amazing to be able to, you know, have a purpose to the experiences that I had, but it's also really heartbreaking to know that not a lot has, has as far as the treatment options, not a lot has been developed. Um, but it's been nice to be able to, even if I can't do anything about it, I can't change it. I can help them know that whatever you're going through, somebody's been through it before and they made it and they're happy. You know, I get a lot of messages about dating. Um, and you know, when you're 20 something years old and you are already self-conscious and then you have to explain this or, or try not to explain it to somebody. Um, just letting them know, you know, I've been there and I'm married and I'm happily married and it's, it's, it's all going to be okay. Just, just try to get through this time. Um, I think that that's my little tiny piece that I can do in this. You mentioned before dating, sex, like certain, like maybe there's certain thing issues that people have to go through that maybe they wouldn't necessarily like that someone like me wouldn't know. Like what are some, like if you had to name a couple really important things that you're like, Eric, like this would be a good takeaway for you to remember, what would those be? Um, so I think a lot of, at least for me, the, the pain is always manageable. 
I, I mean, my pain tolerance is insane. The part that is all has always been harder to hide has been the chronic fatigue syndrome. So people hear that and they think, oh, you're tired. So the way that I explain it to people is drink half a bottle of NyQuil, run a marathon, and then try to, you know, do Sudoku. That's what chronic fatigue feels like. It's, uh, it's yeah. your body feels like it's weighted down with sacks of flour and your brain doesn't work. And so it's harder to hide that. So when you're younger and you're trying to, you know, go out, get hammered and show up to work the next day, like everybody else does, it doesn't work that way. You lose days after. Um, and so th those are the kind of things that you end up hiding. And for me, uh, you know, sometimes it meant missing school because I couldn't too embarrassed to ask somebody to come and get me um, or, you know, eating what I could find in the back of my cupboard because I was too sick to, to go to the grocery store and I was running out of food. Um, so there's there's just these things about being young that you can manage to look like you're like everyone else. Um, but there's some things you just can't there's just no way to hide them, unfortunately. Your, or, uh, I probably will edit that one out. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't, again, I don't remember we talked about this because it's been great. And we talked about it so much stuff. You're, you're working on the memoir mm -hmm. and the memoir is going to be kind of your kind of going through your life. What looking forward. So you're working on that. What what do you want to spend the next you know few years focusing on? Do you like like so? I mean, you seem like you have like this purpose. You've got this dedicated mission. What do you want to do, What do you want to do in the next couple of years? So my hope is, oh goodness, I I, I really think that it's going to take me the next couple of years to write this book. <laughs> but... Well, with that, you know what? Here, I'm going to put you on the spot right now. You got <laughs> better deadlines. And now, okay. Now that being said, I need to. I'm going to be empathetic and say, hey. If you're not feeling good, if you're feeling tired, <laughs> clearly I'm not going to push you on that one. Right, you, right. You, you guys have better deadlines. So, for example, this podcast is now going to be on May 12th because you told me that it's Fibromyalgia Awareness Day, right? Yes, yes. And I needed something to push me because I was like, I don't know when I should release this. Uh, and you know what? That's what, So you got to find something. You got to find a way to – there's a great uh, guy named James Clear – he wrote this book called Atomic Habits. You don't need to read the book. You can just watch a YouTube video on it and, and everyone summed it up. But his whole thing, and a lot of people have said this, is you got to find certain, like, I don't want to say trigger points, but you have to, like, force yourself to write that book early. Because mm -hmm. what's that? Is it, not, is it Moore's Law? Every, things expand with time. Is that Moore's Law? Oh, now one you're making them, me really feel uneducated. One of them... <laughs> well, well, more, well, there's more in Murphy's. There's there, one of them is like everything that can go wrong will go wrong. That's Murphy's that's law. Okay, that's the one I'm mostly familiar with. I don't. Maybe Moore's law is things expand. Like the space you give them, they'll expand. So for you, if you go, oh, I'll finish this book in two years. You're gonna finish that book in two years. So I would challenge you. Maybe what you say is that you want to have, you want to have it done by next May 12th because maybe this year May 12th you do some things. We drop this podcast. And maybe next May 12th, we're talking again about your memoir. Right. Well, it's po everything's possible. And you sound like my writing coach now. But you have a writing coach. <laughs> I do. I have a writing coach. Actually, the funny thing is she is my seventh grade English teacher. 
who then wrote her own books. And because she knows me and has known me since I was little and knows all my family dynamics and everything, she's been a perfect fit. How did you reconnect with her? Oh, we've been, well, the funny thing is she was only a few, you know, a handful of years older than me when she was my English teacher when I was in seventh grade. She, I think she had just graduated college. So the older I got, the closer the gap got. And yeah. we just always stayed in connection through Facebook. And she worked with my mom at one of the high schools in town. Yeah. And so, it, you know, small town. It's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. Just kind of happens that way. That's awesome. <laughs> now, is your writing coach pushing you now to set artificial deadlines? So this, yeah, done? absolutely. So that's been a really helpful thing. And it's it's really been great because um, in she's definitely set, you know, uh, what we call them sort of like um, goal deadlines or deadlines with a goal um, because the reality is, and this is another thing that other people don't understand is that I can have all the goals in the world and I have a flare that lasts me six weeks where it's not even a matter of, I can't do it or, you know, I don't want to do it because I need to rest with brain fog, your brain really, it doesn't work. So typing is not an option. Um, you know, thinking in, in, in different ideas and trying to sort them out, it doesn't work. And it's, it's sort of like, this is an extreme example, but if you think about somebody who's had a stroke and they call it aphasia, where they can't find the words, they know what they wanna say, they're pointing at it, but that particular word just can't come to their mind. And sure. that it's similar in that, in, in our brain fog. So we're working together and, and so far I've been really good with all of my deadlines and it's really been, you know, when I can do it, I do it. And when I can't, I, I admit that I can't, but then I work double time when I can. Have you found that your writing was where you wanted to be or are you just writing things and getting, are you getting frustrated? Like how is your, how is that process going? Oh, the ultimate negative self-talk comes when you try to write. Um, it's, no, I get it. <laughs> I've always written. I've always loved writing. Um, I've always, yeah. you know, um, done really well on my essays and things like that in school. Um, but it's different when you're writing about yourself. And it's an emotional, um, it's an emotional ride and you're reliving traumas. And again, this is why, you know, uh, emotions, when you have emotional changes, it causes flares. So okay. if I'm writing about something and I get really upset or, you know, it just sort of sits really heavy with me, then I can go into a flare. And so then it's like, okay, I'm going to write about this, but I know I'm going to lose a week. You know, I'm going to lose a few days. Um, and then if a storm comes, then I'm going to lose another day because of that. So it's, it's, it's been, I'm, I'm probably doing better than I think I am, but it's a struggle. For sure. A type A person being hard on themselves? Get out of here. <laughs> Never. We're both in Toastmasters. Mm -hmm. That's how we met. Right. Why did you end up joining? I think, so I had considered getting into public speaking about fibromyalgia. There, there are no conferences. There, there really isn't anybody out there talking for us. And I don't mean, you know, speaking on our behalf, but talking in a way that is meant for us to hear. 
Um, and I wanted to hone in those skills, but I also wanted to understand how other people present. I know that I speak a certain way and, you know, love it or hate it, it, it is what it is. But if I can learn from other people and their ways of, you know, one of the things I learned from you is this, if you're not self-conscious, nobody else will be self-conscious. And that's something that I think I need to work on is getting out of my head and finding that secure space. And that makes everybody else feel secure. I appreciate that compliment. And I'm glad that you did not realize that every single time I got up in front of that group, I had a moment of terror. <laughs> I believe it. Every time. And they're like the every nicest people ever. I know. You, there's literally, I will say this though. The last couple of times I was there, like after I spoke in front of them for like four years, it was less a moment of terror and more just like, okay, dude, you've literally been doing this for four years. Like, Move like, on. <laughs> Carl is going to laugh at whatever you say. Yep. yep. You know, you'll get, you'll get a couple of cheap laughs here and there if you need be. If there's an awkward pause, maybe, you know, Alan will giggle. <laughs> <laughs> you'll get through this. Yes. You can do it. And there's always monkey brain if, if you know, you need someone to talk to. There you go. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, monkey brain. I actually might uh, might be getting him on here soon. He wanted to do a video, and I'm like, I'm not in the same state. And that's not what a podcast is. Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> and it's also not technically a podcast. So we're, you know, he, he's like the nicest guy. He, um, I, I love that guy. Okay, so Talia, before we, uh, before we do some of the improv, oh, what? So I, it sounds like before. Oh, you're fine. Please. <laughs> You're gonna be ridiculously good. Before we do that, your message kind of before to people in my spot, it sounded more like, hey, empathy and patience. That's that's kind of what I got a little bit. Like you need to make like not like force empathy, but like it's you know, really take time to understand what other people are going through. And I think people like myself really need to be patient with what's going on with, with this COVID issue because there are others out there that are looking at this from a very different angle. Yeah, I think um, empathy and support. I think what we need is support. And I think it's taken us a long time to get to the point of realizing that we do need help. And that help doesn't necessarily come in the form of, well, sometimes it does, and you know, picking up groceries or come in, coming and sitting with us when we haven't been able to go outside for a while or something like that. But I think the support comes in um, you doing your part um, to keep us healthy. And that's been before COVID, um, you know, people washing their hands around us so we don't get sick. Um, you know, understanding when we can't stay out really late, things like that. Those are the, the forms of support that truly make a difference in our lives, a, a huge difference and can be something really small that you can do for us. Um, but yeah, I think patience is also a good one. I think we can learn patience ourselves. Everyone needs to do two things after this podcast. They need to enroll at their local community college for a logical thinking class. Critical thinking. Critical this is thinking. True. And, then all, and then we somehow all need to get more patient. <laughs> all right. So then before, yeah. So last thing I want to wrap uh, before we get to some of the, uh, try to, we're, yeah, where we both try to be comedians. What would be, so uh, can you talk a little bit about, May 12th. So May 12th is a uh, fibromyalgia awareness day. It's been happening for over 20 years. Um, and basically what we try to do is just make the invisible visible. So 
we try to uh, wear purple. That's kind of the color, but if you can't do that, that's fine. Um, and I am actually hoping that people will accept a challenge um, to post a picture. Ooh. I know, right? Everyone loves a challenge, you know? Uh, post a picture Ooh. on your Instagram and you can tag me in it, holding a piece of paper where you've written something that you've learned about fibromyalgia. It can be a random symptom, a, a friend has it, an aunt has it, or even just how you feel about it, um, or even a positive trait that you know in someone who's battling it, something like that. But the goal is to get rid of the stigma around invisible illnesses and, and, and wipe away the idea that we're, that we're faking it, um, because that leads to bad mental health and our bad mental health leads to our bad physical health. I think that message is wonderful, and I think you are even more wonderful than I knew before. Thank this. you. You can't see I'm blushing right now. Talia <laughs> Mealy, the That's right. Invisible Illness Warrior. Thank you. <laughs> and now you're going to need those warrior skills because we're going to play the laugh portion, although we had a little bit of fun, let's be honest here. <laughs> At least I did. I hope you did. Oh, help me here. Okay. First game we're going to play, Quarantine With Me. The way it works is I will say a topic, or you can say a topic, and that will be, you will say, Quarantine With Me is like blank topic, and then you say something afterward. So we'll, we'll practice. So give me a, all right, Talia, tell me something that, some a piece of, some food in your fridge. Some food in my fridge, olives. What an educated sentence, huh? <laughs> Tell me some food in your fridge. There's that lottery. <laughs> oh, gosh. Olives. So, quarantine with me is like olives. At the beginning, they're tasty. And then when you get to the bottom of the jar, it's nasty juice. <laughs> oh, gross. Uh, that was, okay. That was, all right, what do you got? With the same or pick another word? Olives. You're all, oh, you geez, I would have picked something better if that was the case. Okay. Quarantining, quarantining oh. is with, with me is like olives. Fun on the end of your fingers, but not fun at the end of your meal. <laughs> you don't like olives at the end of your meal? I don't know. It's kind of like having that thing as your last, the last taste in your mouth because it lingers. Why do I feel like you don't like oh, olives? Oh, I love olives. I just don't want them, you know, to be the last thing. Because I have to have dessert immediately after I eat. And if I am mixing olives with something sweet, it's just all kinds of wrong. True story. We used to go to my mom's, so my grandma Pierce's house for Thanksgiving for, I don't know, 20 years. And she would have, she would have olives out and nobody ate them. <laughs> And they probably were recycled and used again. Maybe they were the same olives and we just didn't notice. But I literally, like, no, did we, no there, excuse me, there were two kinds of olives. And I swear, nobody ate the one kind of olives. They just sat there. And you know, like you said, as a teenager, you just go along with stuff. But now that I'm older, unfortunately, my grandma passed away, so I can't ask her about this. But I just want, now I'm like, why did you bring out <laughs> olives everywhere and nobody ate them? Like, was it just... A tradition I wasn't aware of. Right? <laughs> like, why? I don't... Just to mess with you. No. Just, to, I mean, yeah. I know what happens. I know that grandparents do things just to mess with us. 
True. So uh, my uncle passed away like 10 years ago. And at the time he was helping my grandma out with stuff. And I was 23 and I was uh, right out of college. I was work, I was living and working in my hometown or my old college town. And I was going out a lot. And I was, I was like, I, I kept telling people I was going to law school, but I actually hadn't gotten into law school yet. I was just, I was that guy. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to grad <laughs> school. And they're like, oh, which one? I'm like, well, I haven't like taken the test, but I'm, I'm gonna, gonna, you know, yeah. And so I owe her one because she, so my uncle passed away. And I remember one night I had had a couple, couple cocktails and I called her. I'm like, grandma, I'm going to go to school up there. I'm going to move in with you. And she's like, no. Like, what do you mean? No. She's like, I'm not having some party animal, 23 year old idiot. move in. Who doesn't eat olives? Who doesn't eat (laughs) olives? Yeah. I I didn't want to bring that. I I left that part out of the sense that, yeah, I, I've kind of been traumatized. All right. All right, next, next game. World's worst. Okay. So I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you a profession. And I want you or no, you or okay. Yeah, I'm gonna give you a profession and then you say a sentence or two as to what the world's worst blank would do. Okay. Yes. Those instructions were somewhat vague. Okay. World World's worst personal trainer. World's worst personal trainer. Oh, okay. World's worst. Oh, go ahead. I, I'll do this one too, by the way. So go ahead first, because I, I can't think of anything. Okay, well, this is this is what I'm is uh, coming into my brain because of what's going on with everything right now. World's worst personal. Let me wash my hands first. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's perfect. Oh, was I supposed to shower yeah. before I came? Is the mask preferred or is that optional? <laughs> do you ever do you think we can even go have gyms again? Like think of how nasty gyms, gyms were gross are. before. I mean I, I, Yeah, I don't I know, and I'm like I, I have some like Maybe not nasty is the right word, but the sweat. Um, uh, MRSA. Yeah, I, I hope you cut this like, out. I don't want to freak we... people out, but MRSA is real in gyms. No, I'm not. Gonna <laughs> no. no, people need to know. Well, and, and I'm sure there. And I, I will say that my guess is a lot of gyms are going to be insanely a slow to open, and b they're gonna they're gonna have like way more restrictions, and they're gonna be way try to do way more, but. Yeah, I know. I was thinking, I remember going on machines that were like somewhat wet. And I oh, was like, well, I wonder if that a wet wipe or sweat. And I was like, I oh, know. that's Who like cares? sitting on a warm toilet seat. Uh-uh. Uh, uh, oh, <laughs> no. Oh. oh, that's terrible. Uh. Well, that's a good thing, right? It's like sitting on a warm toilet seat. Uh, great. Keeping it classy since 1983. Keeping it classy. All right. Well, thank you so much for for coming on, and I will, well, uh, I will make sure that before May twelfth, we'll get this we'll get this train rolling. But I will be we'll be going on May twelfth and supporting the cause. We'll get some, I uh, will get that piece of paper up for the challenge, and we're gonna we're gonna make this thing. Uh, we're gonna. I keep appreciate pushing. it. Thank you it. so much. Keep yeah, keep me updated with what's going on with you down there too. Stay in touch. I I absolutely will. You are the best. And um, give your husband a shout out too because he sounds like he is also like he's kind of a a rock star. Yeah, (laughs) thank you.
we'll talk soon. All right. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the first guest episode of the Laugh and Learn with Vern podcast. Talia Mealy, what an amazing woman. You can find her, easiest to Google her, T-A-L-I-A space M-I-E-L-E. She is on all the social media, Facebook, Instagram, Medium. If you have questions of her or want to talk more about fibromyalgia or something related to her journey, please reach out to her. She is super responsive. Thank you again for listening. If you found this podcast, you obviously know we're available on Anchor and Spotify and hopefully a few others. Please leave reviews, hopefully positive. Please subscribe and be on the lookout for more episodes. We should have another one coming out later today. And every Tuesday and Friday, you'll see an episode. Tuesday will be with a guest or guests or maybe multiple hosts as well. Who knows? And Friday will be a recap of the prior week. A little bit of what I'm doing, if I'm learning anything interesting, if I laughed at something great, as well as a preview of the following week's episode to come. Have a wonderful day.